All right. Our storyteller in the book of Ruth, who is anonymous, we don't know who actually wrote the story of Ruth down for us, starts us out with some essential background so we can make sense out of the book, right? Uh, about time, about place, and about players in, in the drama. So first, first verse talks about time and place. Look at it with me. Uh, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, his two sons. So first, uh, the, the writer here sets us in a time in history, right? This is a marker that this is intended to be a true short story. It's not a work of fiction. It's about real people in a real place at a specific time in history, and that time is referred to as the days when the judges ruled. Um, on a calendar, that would put you around 1300 BC, right? Long, long, long ago. But in your Bibles, it's just a handful of pages to the left of the book of Ruth. Right before the book of Ruth is the book that tells the story of the time of the judges. It is starkly titled Judges, right? And the book of Judges documents a time, it is said, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the worship of Yahweh, the true God of Israel, was often forsaken. It was kind of like the dark ages for God's people. And here's a sampling from Judges chapter 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. False gods. You remember that from Hosea. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So those were the days when the judges ruled, right? That's like a little summary of the time when Ruth, who has the lead in our story, and her family lived in that dark time. That's the setting for the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, our story starts. So it notes that famine of such severity that this family, um, whom we're about to meet, had to flee for their very life, right? Now, famines persist in our day, um, perhaps especially in places like the Horn of Africa. You, you read about them in Somalia and places like that. Crops fail, and then livestock fail, and then people 
fail, especially the little ones. And I know those are hard images to see. It's not what you come to church for. Um, but I want you to know this is, this is not just a thing of the past. Famines are ongoing around the world while our pantries overflow. And just as a kind of a total aside this morning, if you've never jumped in to help famine victims, there are some excellent child sponsorship organizations, and the studies tell us these organizations really work. They really save and change lives. Um, various Christian organizations do that work. So if your family, if yours is a family that grumbles about leftovers this week, then you should consider helping a family that has no idea what leftovers even means. Okay. But I also show you those pictures. I want to fix in your mind a sense of the desperation that is the setting of our story. It's a spiritually desperate time. The times are dark. The people are living far from God. And it's physically desperate. Food is beyond scarce. It's a legit famine. The people of God, some of them are fleeing to pagan lands just to find a way to feed their families. So don't just skip over that little word, famine. And it may be that the hard spiritual climate and the desperate food climate are related um, because God declared elsewhere in the book of Deuteronomy, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Exactly what was happening in Judges, right? Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You know, God can wield the elements of this world as a judgment upon his sinful people. He can. He has. Not, not that every famine is a direct judgment of our sin. We, we, wouldn't, we never want to say that. But during the time of the judges, that line does seem to be a bit more straight uh, than, we, than it might be in other times. And now at least some of God's people find themselves fleeing for their lives from a famine in the land of milk and honey, the land of plenty, Jeremiah calls it. Something is terribly wrong with that picture. You add to that, the irony is that Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem is where this story starts, a little town called Bethlehem. Isn't it, isn't it curious that of all the little towns in Israel that this story could take place, it takes place in Bethlehem. Um, especially in light of that genealogy at the end of the book that's pointing towards David, that points towards Christ. But Bethlehem means house of bread. Think pantry, right? And the pantry is now empty. And they must flee for their lives. And they flee to Moab of all places. Moab is a pagan land. It's modern-day Jordan is where you would find it now. Um, it's known as, as the land of Chemosh, uh, their chief god. And they had a handful of marks against them in the history of Israel. You had to be between a rock and a hard place uh, as an Israelite to seek refuge in Moab. You had to be desperate and maybe not all that wise spiritually to want to go there, the land of another God. Um, so that's the time 
and the place where the where the book of Ruth unfolds. And those things are all critical to understand what's about to happen. But uh, now we begin to meet the people of the story in verse three, or verse two rather. The name of the man who took his family to Moab was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. And they were Ephrathite, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Melon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So as if, as if the famine were not enough, this family finds themselves refugees, in a land of their enemy, Uh, a desperate choice, maybe a questionable choice that they had made, but on top of all of that, they now suffer unspeakable losses. Naomi, who is the matriarch of this family, right, loses first her husband and then both of her sons, not just one son, she loses them both. She must be beyond crushed. I mean, can you imagine to lose your husband and then to lose both of your sons? Her sorrow is compounded, if that's even possible, by what all this means for her. She's now a widow and a mother who has lost both of her sons. All of her biological children, but especially sons, would have been her source of provision. She's a refugee. She's an immigrant from an enemy land, she's of a different race. She is wholly other everywhere she goes. She has no likely source of income now that her sons and her husband have died. And as we'll we'll see in the second act of the story, she is amongst the poorest of the very poor. This is Naomi's life. She's gone from a married woman with two wonderful sons in a plentiful land, to this. Writer Carolyn James, she says, parallels between the book of Ruth and the book of Job are striking. Both uh, both sufferers' losses are catastrophic. Job loses his livestock, servants, children, and his health. Naomi endures famine, the life of a refugee, and the deaths of her husband and both of her sons. It's a total wipeout for both sufferers, the only difference being that Job, as a man in a patriarchal culture, can eventually begin again. Not so Naomi, who as a postmenopausal widow is finished. Both sufferers turn their attention away from secondary causes to Yahweh and cry out in protest over the injustices involved in the suffering that God has unleashed on them. Job questions God's justice. Naomi doubts his love. Some scholars call her the female Job. All that remains for her, literally, are her two daughters-in-law, and they are in the same boat of hopelessness with their mother-in-law, Naomi. Their plight has been described this way. In biblical times, the four most vulnerable demographics were the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the alien. Naomi's daughter-in-laws were at risk in at least three of the four categories. They were clearly widows, poor, and foreign. 
The future only promises Naomi more troubles. The deaths of all the men in the family instantly put Naomi and her daughters-in-law at risk. On their own, in the ancient culture, unprotected widows became targets for abuse, exploitation, assault, and even trafficking. So driven by all of this loss and hopelessness, Naomi devised a desperate plan. She decides to return back to her homeland. In verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Don't miss this tiny little glimmer of hope in a really dark and troubled story, right? The famine has lifted in Judah. The pantry is being restocked in Bethlehem. And the author is careful to record how it was that that little bit of hope came into the story, right? Yahweh, the one true God, has visited his people and given them food. And we see here that God is Lord of both famine and plenty. You want to say, hang on to that little bit of hope, Naomi. But it seems to escape her. And mid-journey, she kind of has a change of plan. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. And most of your Bibles will capitalize that word Lord. And that, that's a representation of that name, Yahweh, of God's name. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. See, Naomi, she's mindful of waits, what waits for her daughters back in Bethlehem. Um, there they will be, the poor refugees from another land and another race, just as she has been in Moab. Remember her daughters, her daughter-in-law, she calls them her daughters, they were, they were Moabites. Not Israelites, not from Judah. And in an act of genuine, what appears to be genuine care for them, she prays the kindness of Yahweh upon them and sends them back to their families in Moab. This is yet another sorrowful scene of loss for this family. Even this little remaining shred of family now is about to be torn apart. They wail and they mourn at the prospect. But her daughters, facing that sorrow, push back. Naomi, hopeless yet caring for her daughters, pushes back even harder. Verse 10, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so these daughters, these daughters-in-law cannot bear the sorrow of parting with Naomi. She cannot bear the, the thought of the suffering they'll face 
back in Bethlehem if they go with her. Listen again to Carolyn James. She says the road ahead involved marginalization and exclusion, a frightening vulnerability, poverty, and hunger, and no hope for pagan, Gentile, barren women because the daughters had been without child 10 years into their marriages to re-enter the marriage market. Prospects for marriage in Bethlehem would be nil for a pagan Gentile girl who is certifiably barren. Moab, on the other hand, meant home, family, male protection, and the possibility of a second marriage. Naomi's lament of her childlessness and the hopelessness of her situation fuels bitterness in her soul. She cannot be of help to the daughters that she loves. This, on top of the losses of her sons and husbands, whom she also could not help, has driven her to total despair, but not total faithlessness. Um, You know, admittedly, her comments here about her daughters returning to the gods of their lands um, is going to be troubling. She's about to make that statement. It reveals gaps in her faith. She's hardly exemplary here in her theology, right? But she does genuinely care for her daughters-in-law, and she sees Yahweh's kindness as their hope, even in the land of Moab. So that language of kindness here, it's an ancient Hebrew word. Uh, we, we could kind of translate it as hesed. Uh, one writer described it like this. Hesed has been translated by a smorgasbord of words like kindness, mercy, loyalty, loving kindness, loyal, steadfast, unfailing, or just plain love. Words that certainly touch on what hesed means, but by themselves don't begin to do justice to this powerful, richly laden word. Another writer said, hesed is a power word in the Bible. And the most important word in the book of Ruth, it shows up only three times, but the concept runs through the whole story, and ultimately drives all of the action. See, in the day, in people's minds, gods tended to be regional gods, right? Um, You had uh, the god Chemosh in uh, Moab, and then you had Yahweh, who was in Israel. You know, kind of like you got Duke and Durham and... UNC and Chapel Hill, right? They have their, they have their areas that they, most of the fans follow those teams. Um, and NC State and Raleigh, there you go. I didn't want to exclude you all um, from your idols. Um, but <laughs> but here, Naomi recognizes something, right? She knows that Yahweh's kindness knows no national boundaries. It doesn't, it's not limited by geography. It's not limited by race. Remember, her daughters are Moabites, and she is praying the kindness, the, the chesed of Yahweh upon her daughters. And she's right to have that hope. It's just too small a hope and too hidden for her to claim it for her own life at this point. The author records her lament here in detail for another reason than to chronicle her abject sorrow. And he's introducing us to a really curious tradition in Israel that we're going to talk a lot more about in the second and third acts of this play. 
It's a custom that's been described this way. The custom is going to turn everything around for Naomi uh, in the chapters that are to come. The custom was that when an Israelite husband died, his brother or near relative was to marry the widow and preserve the brother's name. It comes from Deuteronomy 25. Naomi is referring to this custom in verse 11 when she says she has no sons to marry Ruth and Orpah. She thinks it is hopeless for Ruth and Orpah <clears throat> to remain <clears throat> excuse me, committed to the family name. So Naomi's outpouring of anguish over a future with no hope for her or her daughters paints a vivid contrast in what's just about to happen when Ruth responds. First, that contrast gets even more stark in verse 14. It says, then they lifted up their voices, the daughters did, wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and evidently departed. But Ruth clung to her. And now the family is down to just two. Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. But Naomi's compassion for Ruth and, and her despair for her future causes her to keep pushing Ruth away. She said in verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth is having none of it. The stand that she's about to take, the faith in Yahweh she's about to reveal is one of the most powerful statements of love and faith blended together in all of Scripture. It's so beautiful, in fact, that it finds its way into weddings sometimes, even though it has nothing to do with a wedding. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord Yahweh do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So wow, wow, right? I mean, Naomi's love for her daughters was such that she would give them up and send them back to their Moabite families. That was impressive love. But Ruth's love for her mother-in-law is off the charts devoted here. Professor Daniel Block writes about Ruth's choice. She says, would she choose her own people, the Moabites, and their god, Chemosh, with whom she was no doubt familiar? Or would she cast her lot with her mother-in-law and her alien kinsmen and their god Yahweh, whom she knew only through the grid of Naomi's perfect faith? With radical self-reliance, another writer says, she abandons every base of security that any person, let alone a poor widow in that cultural context, would have clung to. Her native homeland, her own people, even her own gods. When her mother-in-law is saying terrible things about Yahweh and pushing Ruth away, and when Bethlehem promises nothing but misery and hardship, Ruth embraces Naomi and Naomi's God. And in the face of this tenacious love, Naomi yields. Ruth's devotion to her prevails. And they journey together, it seems, in silence. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And the story then picks up when they get back in Bethlehem, the same place the story started. Right? We've come full circle. 
Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Which means pleasant. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Ruth's beautiful statement of loving devotion has not exactly buoyed Naomi's spirits, right? The women of Bethlehem do a double take when she arrives. Famine, loss, sorrow upon sorrow have taken their toll on the one whose name meant pleasant. And Naomi says, just call me bitter. Mara means bitter. Because that is what the heavy hand of my God has turned me into. And again, Naomi's faith is, as you can imagine, a mixed bag here. She doesn't doubt God. She doesn't doubt his existence. She doesn't question his rule, his sovereign lordship over famine and even death. And she's right in all of this. Famine, infertility, and death, as well as health and fertility and life. God wields them all. He's Lord of all these things, everything. But John Piper has a good insight here about how we react to these things. He says there's a lesson here. When we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. We become so bitter we can't see the rays of light peeping out around the clouds. It was God who broke the famine and opened the way home. It was God who preserved a kinsman to continue Naomi's line, spoiler alert. It was God who constrains Ruth to stay with Naomi, but Naomi's so embittered by God's hard providence that she doesn't see his mercy at work in her life. Naomi is missing these little glimmers of grace, they're there, that God is giving to her amidst this first dark act in this little four-act play. She's missing that Yahweh did indeed lift the famine on the land. She's missing that he saw that the message got to her about him lifting the famine back while she was yet in Moab. She is missing, and most of all, she's missing Ruth. Naomi stands there talking to the women of Bethlehem and says she's empty, no husband, no sons. And standing right next to her is her amazing daughter-in-law who has abandoned country and family and opportunity and even her gods to accompany Naomi to a strange land. And yet Naomi cannot see her. She cannot value her because her grief is so great. But this way of terrible suffering is about to yield amazing fruit as the rest of the story unfolds in this little family of two. I like the way Carolyn James puts it. She says, Naomi's catastrophic losses complete the collapse of her world. We find her sitting in the smoldering ruins of the life she once knew with no hope of recovery. She's no choice but to buy into the culture's view of her. Anyone in Naomi's world, including Naomi herself, would tell us with absolute certainty, the story is over. Who cares about two women who are zeros? Once the men wipe from the story, there's no story. <clears throat> this is where the Bible begs to differ with the world's way of devaluing women. For it is at this point that much to everyone's surprise, the biblical camera zooms in on two childless women, two zeros, and the real story begins. 
Look at the closing verse to our chapter. It's a, it's, a, it's a hopeful little summary. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They arrived back at the beginning of barley harvest. Supposedly, barley was the first crop ready for harvest. Plentiful times are on the horizon in Bethlehem. God was about to restock the pantry, right? And in Act 2 and following in the book of Ruth, we'll see God provide for this little family of two in stunning ways. And God would do that. He's about to do that. He's about to provide for them. But he's also about to provide for the world through them. Professor Lawson Younger says, their sufferings are for reasons that go beyond them. They are part of the greater plan of the Almighty in his administration of a complex universe. So, another spoiler alert, right? It's at the barley harvest that Ruth will meet Boaz of Jesus' genealogical fame, right? And they would wed, and they will have a son named Obed, and the rest is the beautiful unfolding history of the coming of the Son of God into our world to rescue us from an eternity of sorrowful days. Jump with me back to those opening verses, the New Testament again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you skip down just a line or two, then you read this. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Ruth, by name, makes it into the genealogy of the Messiah. Naomi's daughter, the poverty-stricken refugee, the widow and barren one from outside of the race and place of God's people was being positioned to bring salvation to the world through Jesus. Every one of us here have experienced good by Ruth's sorrow, or, and Naomi, Naomi's sorrow, redeemed. But on her worst, most sorrowful days, Naomi couldn't see any of this, right? And, and most days, neither can we. Grief can terribly cloud our faith. It's not that the, the Messiah is going to be in your family tree, right? That, that's... That's probably not going to happen, but you may be being positioned, maybe being placed and readied for the Messiah's story and hope to come to someone somewhere at some time that were it not for your suffering, you would not be there to speak of it. I mean, this is the, this is the steadfast testimony of Noah and Steph Joyner when they talk about um, the, the extremely difficult early health crises in the life of their son, Shepherd. They like lived in that children's wing at the hospital. And there, because they were there at that time in that place, through their sorrow, 
Um, lots of conversations about Jesus the Christ, the hope of the world, to hopeless moms and dads sitting in that same hospital way. You know, we can learn from Naomi's story and let it be an anchor for the dark days when we are wondering, do I matter? Does God even care? And as we'll see in the rest of the story, Naomi matters to God. Ruth matters. God cares deeply for this broken little family, and he will use famine and their great sorrows to bring them their greatest joy. And so this is a story for us to cling to for our own lives. You do matter. God does care. Remember Naomi. Remember Ruth. Keep the faith. God is secretly, hiddenly at work. Our God really does care about unimportant people like us. Their lives of sorrow matter to him and are redeemable in his hands. It's, it's, it's sometimes called God's hidden hand, his secret work. We cannot know and cannot see what he is doing beyond our little lives, but Naomi's story assures us that a sovereign good God is at work. He wastes nothing. He redeems even evil for good. Your sorrow and your great loss does not mean that you are forsaken or forgotten. It does not mean you are not loved. It may mean that hope is hidden for a moment or for a season. And during those dark times, we cling to the message of the book of Ruth. We cling to the promise of the book of Hebrews where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There is a prayer that I often pray and that we've prayed together in the past and it echoes the heart of the declaration of Ruth we heard today when she said to her mother-in-law, your people shall be my people and your God my God and where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. It declares faith, this little prayer does, when hope is hidden. It declares trust when we are afraid and I'd like to pray it over you as we close today. Um, it'll be on the screen if you can absorb it better by, by reading along or just close your eyes and let me pray it over you, um, for you, as it were. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. 
so be it. Amen.